Baptist Church, Charlotte. Welcome, everybody. Um, we're going to get ready here in a second. We're going to get started. My text tonight is taken from Isaiah chapter number nine. Isaiah chapter number nine and the first part of verse six. Everybody here should know that or you may have heard it before. Isaiah chapter number nine, verse six. I'll just read it here. It says, for unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. I'll stop there. Last week, we looked at Jesus as the Sar Salom, if you remember, or, or the Prince of Peace. And this week, we look at another view of him, and we take it from this verse here, verse 6 of Isaiah 9. And tonight's subject is, wow, the wonderful counselor. Wow, the wonderful counselor. Uh, th this passage in Isaiah 9 is deeply prophetic, as you know. And uh, as often as I read it, I always get something new. I thought I'd dig a little deeper. It continues to unfold in so many ways as as we study it, and so we learn so much uh, more when we when we study God's word and and don't take it for granted. And what I learned is that God has already done so much, so much on our behalf. Um, it really should take our breath away. So as I was about to say earlier, last week we studied. Um, the Prince of Peace. This week we're looking at him as a wonderful counselor. So the first Sunday of Advent was last year. Advent, of course, referring to the arrival of Jesus as a baby in Bethlehem, Judea, uh, in the Galilee Valley. And it marks the beginning of the season leading up to Christmas. It's always an exciting time of year and for many especially the children, it's their favorite time of year, right? They get Christmas gifts and enjoy sweets and get to have fun. In fact, a few days off from school, et cetera. But, but, but it can also be, I think you'll agree, a very hectic time of year. Amen? Very hectic time of year. And perhaps, you know, you joined in the festivities yourself. And maybe you joined in with the millions of other Americans and risked life and limb a couple of weeks ago for a few Christmas bargains doing what we call the Black Friday sales. Right? As an aside, does anybody know why it's called Black Friday? You can turn your, your, your microphone on and just tell me. Do you know why that, that time is called Black Friday? The end of, of November? No one? I heard it was for Can you hear me? Yes, Vicky, go ahead. Well, I understood it was to be it it um gets all the the companies that's in the red and the positive. Right? Well done. Well done, Vicky. Okay. <laughs> Was that what you were going to say, Bridget? No, 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 no. It's totally something to do with, um, I just hear that, you know, but 
about um, selling slaves around that time. I don't know if anyone have ever heard that. I don't know the truth about it, but I'm glad to hear this version of it. Yeah, so the, 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 the truth or the actual meaning is when most retailers balance their books for the first time, they're in the black, meaning that they begin to make a profit all year long, they're they're recording red ink in their in their books, and red ink means losses, and black ink means profit, right? So that's why this this period is referred to as Black Friday. I thought I'd throw that trivia in there for your for your pleasure. <laughs> so, understandably, during this time of year, with all the hustle and the bustle, it's not uncommon for teachers of the Bible like myself and pastors to to appeal to the congregations that they minister to, to just slow down a little bit and not miss the true meaning of the season. So sermons will tend to focus on the real meaning of Christmas and invite people to the center, to center their thoughts on Jesus as the, the, the reason for the season, right? And what it means for the world and for our respective lives. I, like many other Bible teachers, have made these kinds of appeals in the past where we stress that Jesus is the reason for the season. And that's appropriate. That's appropriate and worthwhile and even necessary to make that distinction. Recently, though, I I read about how a young mother was expressing some misgivings to her local preacher at Christmas time. Uh, she's a mature Christian, and so, of course, she does appreciate the spirit behind those sorts of Christmas sermons, if you will. But she says during the Advent season, she longs for something different. Uh, not another guilt-inducing uh, sermon uh, about what she needed to do to get Christmas right. But she was hoping for a message of hope about what God has already done to put the world right with the Lord. She wanted a message that doesn't depend on her doing one more thing to make Christmas season a success, whether it's shopping or cooking or caring for the kids or finishing school or wrapping presents or attending parties or keeping the house or even traveling across country to visit with family. Uh, And oh, oh, making sure that my focus is still on Jesus. You got it? She she said to him, she described standing against the back of the church during this thing I was reading during the Christmas Eve service. She had her baby on her hip and she was listening to the pastor, a well-intended Christmas challenge to focus on Jesus. And she made this honest confession. You know, I, I really wanted a message that did not hinge on me doing one more thing, <laughs> as if it is my action or thought that made Christmas Christmas. She confessed that she wanted the hope that God's gift of Jesus had already transformed the world, whether we are conscious of it or not. And that was enough. So so it's all God's doing. And I must confess that I, too, am convicted by this woman's honest testimony. And frankly, I want to take up the challenge. I want to take up this challenge, uh, this season, uh, not to add to your to-do list for Christmas, but to challenge or to encourage you uh, to remember what Christ has already done, what God has already done. 
So once again, let's turn to Isaiah 9 and look at this text. It's a magnificent celebration. If you were to read beginning at verse 1 in Isaiah 9, I probably should turn there. Uh, if you begin at verse 1, it's it's a magnificent magnificent celebration of hope in the face of national trauma, right? disaster even, despair. Israel, just like now, once again, is facing an enemy, a foreign invasion. So it is shrouded in fear and gloom. And as Isaiah 8.22 said, in utter darkness, the mood was no doubt not unlike what we've seen in other cities that were overrun by the enemy, Nazis overran uh, many, many cities in Nazi Germany, taking over Paris and, and, and places, Prague and, and other, other cities in Europe, right? The, the past years, what we have seen, <laughs> with the tragic death of dozens of innocent people. This was more than that. It was the annihilation. They were facing the annihilation of their entire country by foreigners. The Assyrians, no doubt. They were threatening to invade Israel from the north and haul them off into exile, which they would do later on from this time of Isaiah's writing. Yet in Isaiah 9, we see the people's gaze turn from the present to the future, to what God is going to do to put the world to rights and redeem his people. You'll notice that the chapter is rendered in the form of a poem. If you were to read it the way I, I've been reading it this week, it's really a poem or a song. It's a celebration of hope. You'll also notice that it is spoken in the past tense as though it's already happened. And you may ask, why, why, why is this? Well, from both Isaiah's perspective and God's perspective, it has already happened. It's, it's as good as done. That's the, the confidence Israel ought to have in response to this powerful prophetic word against the dark backdrop of national despair and gloom, Isaiah envisions the dawning of the light of salvation coming out of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is about five miles from Jerusalem. And in chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, we see Isaiah, Isaiah saying, let me read it. He says, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and in the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee, the nations. These people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Isn't that poetic? Have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them this light has shone. Speaking of the Christ child who would to be born, right? <coughs> Excuse me, referring to him as light, right? And so the result is, is, is great joy for God's people. He writes in verse three, God is going to bring about liberation from foreign oppressors. 
uh, in verse four. But more than that, he's going to bring about a complete cessation of warfare itself. We see that in verse five. Now, how is he going to do that? He tells us in verse six, we read it as our text, through the gift of a child, the birth of a boy, Isaiah writes, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. It's a remarkable answer to all of our problems, isn't it? The birth of a child. And one writer in his poetry puts it so well. He wrote, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a seemingly helpless child. The power of God is so far superior to that of the Assyrians and all the big shots of the world that he can defeat them by coming as a mere child. His answer to the bullies swaggering through history is not to become even a greater bully. His answer is Jesus. Jesus is our wonderful counselor. This magnificent chapter gives us the prophet's first major exposition of Israel's coming king, our king, her long-awaited and prophesied Messiah. He'd already hinted at the birth of this world-transforming child earlier in chapter 7 when he announced that, quote, the virgin will conceive and bring forth a son, and you're going to call his name Emmanuel, which in chapter 7, verse 4, when you translate it, it is interpreted God with us. But here in chapter 9, he gives us more. He elaborates at greater length about who this child will be. He gives us four more names. He gives us four more names. And the first one we're talking about tonight, Wonderful Counselor. The next one, this child would be the Mighty God. The next one, the Everlasting Father. And the one we covered last week, the Prince of Peace, the Sar Salome. And so today we take up this name, Wonderful Counselor, given to this child who we know is Christ. He will be the Wonderful Counselor. And just to be clear, this is a name given to the child, but as is often in, in, in biblical writings, uh, it refers to God himself. The child reveals God to be a Wonderful Counselor. And what does this actually mean? Well, the literal translation, the literal translation of a wonderful counselor means a wonder of a counselor, which means an extraordinary counselor, a one that gets results, or a counselor of wonders, one who counsels amazing things. Which reminds me of the reaction of the angels at his advent, as his announcement. Do you remember the exclamation of the angels in heaven when they realized what God was doing in Bethlehem? They were astonished. And how did Luke put it? The Bible says that in Luke chapter number two, verse eight, beginning at verse eight, the Bible says, and in the same region, there were shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid, or they were filled with great fear. But the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you 
good tidings or good news, good news of great joy. And it will be for all people. Listen to this, verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the anointed one, who is Christ the Lord. Verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. Verse 13. And suddenly, listen to this. There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, I can't believe this. What in the world is happening here? is what the angels, that's in my words. Verse 14 tells us what they actually said. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, peace, goodwill toward men. In other words, to my mind, the angels are saying, wow, wow, look at this. Look what God is doing. Look what God is, that's how I, um, you know how my mind works, how I interpret the angels' exclamation, their surprise as to what God is doing. Verse 15, when the angels went away from them back into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, wow, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child. Verse 18, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. They wondered. He is a wonderful counselor. He is a counselor, a strategist, if you will, of wonderful things. But we should very much think about... Um, Something this use the use of this this word counselor sometimes could 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 trip us up because we we're thinking of psychiatrists and psychologists and you know therapists maybe and I don't want you to think of that uh, the literal translation point more to what I just said that that it's a strategist if you were to think of the role of Joseph to Pharaoh. That's more what it's referring to. He is a counselor to the king and the ancient interpretation of the word meaning wise advisor. The king was advised primarily about how to devise their plans to win military victories. And that's what this uh, word points to that 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 Jesus is going to be the wisest of counselors to win the ultimate battle, my God, to win our battle. It's a way of of talking about how God's plan and purpose ought to fill us. It ought to fill us with wonder. When we see his plans revealed through this Christ child, we ought to marvel. And we ought to say, wow, I know I have, as it, as it was revealed to me. I mean, I've read this text probably hundreds of times. And, and, and I think of the way in which that Jesus brought about salvation. It was, it was marvelous. It took everybody by surprise. Not, not the least of which were the, the religious people of the day, the, the Pharisees, the shepherds, even the angels in heaven. They were like, wow, this is amazing. They're familiar with God. They, they are in the presence of God, the Bible says. So they, they, they understand and know God. 
and his capabilities. Yet at this moment, this incident, this occurrence startled them to the point where in my mind, their minds were blown, if you will. If, speaking, of course, anthropomorphically, they, they, their minds were blown and they were like, wow, I've never seen it like this. I've never seen it like this. Uh, there is a nice book on prayer by a woman by the name of Annie Lamont. The book is titled Help, Thanks, Wow. And I like how she described this wow response. It's, she says it's often said with a gasp. You know what I mean? <sighs> wow. A sharp intake of breath when we can't think of another way to capture or to explain what it is that we're seeing or what it is that we're experiencing, we say, wow. Uh, a way of describing shocking beauty. Have you ever seen something so shockingly beautiful that it takes your breath away? Uh, whether it's a, a beautiful sunset or amazing uh, seashore or water that is so clear, you feel you can drink it and you go, wow, right? It's, it's unexpected, it's sudden, it's unbidden insight or an unexpected flash of grace and beauty. And, and, it, and it, it, it shocks you. It means that we are not dulled into wonder. We click into being fully present in the moment and we're stunned into a gasp. <gasps> wow is about having one, one's mind blown by the mesmerizing or the miraculous or the beautiful. And that that's what it means to say that when this child was born, that's how the angels reacted. This son to be given, named Jesus, would be a wonder, would be a wonder, would be a wonder and a strategist beyond our, our belief. He reveals God's wonder-filled wisdom to the world and uh, it causes us to say, wow, his plans blow our minds, mesmerize us with the miraculous, show us shocking beauty, unexpected flashes of grace, causes us to gasp with a sharp intake of the breath and we say, wow. Wow is God's wisdom in full view, in full view. And I don't know, I was trying to remember when was the last time I was taken aback like that. And, um, well, I'm not gonna tell you, but there, 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 are, there are several moments in my life when something or someone was so beautiful, you take, you take a double, it's a double take. You're like, wow, that's God's perfection right there, right? But what the prophet could only see uh, in, in an outline, we get to see in full color. This, this child, this child that is born, this son who is given, is none other than the creator of heaven and earth. Here in, in Nazareth, in Bethlehem, Judea, in the stable, 
He is God's wonderful counselor. He is God's wisdom incarnate. He is the embodiment of God's saving plans for the world. The kinds of plans that make you go, man, this is crazy. How did you do this? How did you do this? How did you do this? When I think of God's incarnation, consider his incarnation. That is God becoming man, right? What a wonder it is. When God decided to redeem the world, he chose to do it by uniting divinity with humanity. Who would have thought of that? Right? Uh, the infinite to take on the finite. Is that how you're going to do it? Deity to become a baby. Is that the way you're going to do it? Who comes up with these plans? Who, who would ever think of that? A sovereign and holy God wrapped, wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. Seriously? Becoming vulnerable. This is how God redeems the world. By becoming just like us in every respect, yet without sin. Yeah. That makes us say, wow. Or, or even when you read the gospel, consider Jesus's life. That makes you say, wow. He, he displayed the wisdom of God perfectly in all that he did, not just in his teaching, but in the way he lived. He didn't live high on the hog, as we say, in a palace with royalty. Instead, the Bible says he lived in lowliness, in meekness, in humility, born to a poor virgin. With a, with a common husband, a carpenter, he became one who came to, to serve and not to be served. Amen. Paul writes in, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, quote, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Amen. Think about think about his death. Think about his death. He died, the Bible says, in our place. And for our sins, not his own. Uh, and quoting 2 Corinthians 5, 21 here, the Bible says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But more than that, because it was in our place, he had to endure the fury of God's wrath poured out on him for our sin. He was forsaken on the cross, so we didn't have to be forsaken for all eternity. God gave him judgment so you and I could have mercy. The wonderful wisdom of God in our salvation. Now consider his resurrection. Another wow moment. He was crucified. Yes. There he died when he gave up the ghost. Yes. They took him down from the cross, buried him in a, in a borrowed tomb. Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. There he laid for two old days. And on the third day, another wow moment against all God odds. God triumphed over the grave, raising Jesus from the dead. He rose. Right? Talk about a wow moment. There's a hope against all hope in the resurrection of Jesus. God defeats death. How? 
by enduring and surviving death. Oh my God. What Isaiah could only see in the outline, we now see in technicolor, as they used to say, with greater detail of light, in much greater revelation, in full color. Jesus is the embodiment of God's saving wisdom, and it fills us with delight and surprise, mesmerizing us with unexpected grace. And we say, wow. Say, wow. And then we have the angelic astonishment that I mentioned as God, as wonderful counselor, does what the angels themselves couldn't even predict. It's, it's no wonder that whenever we find an announcement of Jesus's birth in the Gospels, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, um, we find angels singing their hearts out, right? As though they can't contain their surprise and delight at what God has revealed of his plans in the life of this child. Let's read Luke 2, verse 8. Luke 2, verse 8. The whole company of heaven had to, to show up for this announcement of this child's birth because they were so astonished with the plan God had devised to save the world. They'd been trying to figure it out for centuries, millennia even, just how it was God was going to redeem the world. Ever since God showed mercy in the garden rather than wrath to that first couple, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, the angels knew death would not be the ultimate end for humanity. They knew this when he rose from the grave as well. But they had no idea. They had no idea how he was going to do it. They knew he was up to something. But they had no idea how he was going to do it. They could, only, they could only speculate and try to figure it out. And that's why Peter tells us that uh, the angels in heaven strained to get a glimpse of how it was uh, that God was going to redeem humanity. And he writes in 1 Peter 1, verse 12, these were the things he says, into which angels longed to look, into which, into those things of salvation, the angels longed to uncover and discover. I imagine the angels like like eager children on Christmas Eve trying to peek through the wrapping paper to see what wonderful things was in, uh, in store for them in their Christmas gifts. Uh, but, but one thing is for sure, in all of their speculation and pondering about how God was going to redeem the world, they never would have thought, they never would have thought that God himself would do it personally. What angel would ever imagine that the creator God himself was going to take on human form, flesh, and being made, as the psalmist said, a little lower than the angels, Psalms chapter number eight, verse five. Just imagine their surprise and delight when they saw God in a manger. <laughs> they saw God as a baby in a manger. No wonder they sang glory to God in the highest. <laughs> I probably would too. So that was the wow of God's wisdom in the church. But there is an amazing thing in the display of this wow wisdom of God. It doesn't stop with the Christ child. It doesn't stop with Jesus. God continues to display his wisdom in and through us, the body of Christ. Yes, the church, you and me. 
The Apostle Paul picks up this point in, in his writing to the church at Ephesus. He says in Ephesians, he says something audacious, actually, that we, the church, are now the place where God reveals his wonder. Oh, my God. God reveals, God continues to reveal his wonder through us. He is a wonderful counselor. And if you read Ephesians 3, in verse 8, he writes, Of this gospel I was made a minister, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Verse 8, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, he writes, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, this is it, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might, might now be made known to us, the rulers and authorities, also in the heavenly places. So, so think about what the church is now today. This thing we call the body of Christ. We, we are an unlikely bunch, right? But what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, beginning at verse 26, we read, quote, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing those things are, that are. And if you jump down to verse 29, he says, so that no human being might boast in his presence. You see, the church as the body of Christ in all of our beautiful oddness and craziness is the living testimony of the wonder of God. The wonderful strategy of God uh, being made, revealed to us. Who has put this whole thing together in a way that surprises and delights us all. Even the angels in heaven. You know, I always think about, um, especially at this time of year, I don't know why, um, when I first met Jesus as a mere youth, I was, you know, in my early teens. Uh, I got the Holy Ghost in 1990, more than 33 years ago, but my conversion was an unusual one. I had known I'd gone to church, you know, since I was, you know, younger, you know, started going to church regularly um, in in. in Jamaica and Kingston, probably starting at age 10, 11, 12, or whatever. And having grown up in Sunday school, I was baptized uh, in August of 1975. Uh, so I was 11 in Kingston, Jamaica. But when our family emigrated to the U.S. a, a few years later, 77, I lost my way as a young 13-year-old boy. I was a baby, 
basically, just kind of exploring my interest in Christ. It was 15 years later that God met me and found me and saved me in the basement of a church in Mount Vernon, New York. <laughs> my first real touch of the Holy Spirit resulted in, in, in what I recall as being pure joy and a deeper hunger um, for God. I remember um, not wanting to go home after church. I, I drove and I had a friend that didn't drive and we would just sit in my car and talk for hours. I, I saw him not very long ago um, and we were reflecting on just, just, just the joy of the Lord, the joy of the word of the Lord. God saw me. <laughs> God saw me and my hunger for him. He saw it fit to save me and called me into ministry. It's nothing that I did. It's a wonder to me, man. It's like, really? I was crazy. I was doing all kinds of foolishness, you know? Calling myself a DJ and staying out all late at night and carrying on. Nothing that I did, but God saw me. That's my story. But every saving encounter with Jesus Christ, every act of conversion is what C.S. Lewis calls a case of being surprised by joy. When you come to Christ, you meet the wonderful counselor and learn about his mesmerizing and miraculous plan for your life. And that should fill you with delight, right? The transformation has begun. And I'll, I'll end with this last reference. Just like it didn't stop with Jesus, it went on to give birth to the church. And of, and of course, it doesn't stop when you meet Jesus either. The delight, the wonder continues. It's the gift that continues to give. The delightful surprise continue throughout the whole of your life. Not just at the beginning when you first meet Jesus, but as you learn to walk with Jesus and discover that he is indeed a wonderful counselor, a guide, a strategist that's telling you, uh, do this, not that, go here, not there, hang out with those people, not them, right? He's guiding you. His plans are always perfect. It's not always clear to you, but just follow his leading, the leading of the spirit. His ways are not always what you would expect, but they're always gracious and good and full of delight and surprising. As you walk with Jesus, you begin to realize that what he has said is in fact true, right? There will be times when you nod your head, you were like, man, God, I can't believe it was true. There is strength in weakness. There's, there's blessing in brokenness. There's exaltation in humility. There's comfort in affliction. There's even life in the midst of death. All because Jesus, the wonderful counselor, is it's all very, it's all very counterintuitive. But it is all full of deep and lasting joy. And so as you, as you discover your way in the Lord, as you, you know, I think about my friend who just got the Holy Ghost at our home not very long ago. 
um, she was ref- telling me how how she she went home and she was in, she was encouraged by the spirit to to go on a fast. I had baptized her uh, just the, the week before, and she was re- recounting, telling me the story. And you could see you could see the joy on her face, and you can hear the joy in her words when the Lord filled her with the Holy Ghost in her home, and she began to speak in tongues, and and her siblings were saying, you know, "What are you doing? You don't need to be doing that." But but as the Bible says, it was joy unspeakable and full of glory. She couldn't stop, and the Lord filled her up with the Holy Spirit. I encourage you to pursue the Lord in a way that you would discover him as a wonderful counselor, that you would you would heed his wisdom, heed his counsel, heed his advice, uh, uh, implement the strategy that he has placed before you for your life and discover him as a wonder. He is a wonder, a wonderful counselor. Amen. Amen. That's the end uh, of my teaching tonight. I hope you got something from it. Um, I pray that the Lord will just kind of make it yours. Make it yours. Just take it and just make it yours. Uh, Because the Lord has a, a plan for each of our lives. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come worship with us. Thank you.